Um, today's reading is in Genesis 2, 15 to 20. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all of the wild animals and all of the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all of the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word, for it is powerful and effective. We ask that you would open our ears to hear what you would like to speak to each and every heart this morning. We ask that you would be with the preacher, and we just thank you for this um, opportunity to worship you through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, well, God has just spoken to me, and he's given me liberty to talk about something that my wife forgot to mention, the Foundations of Faith Bible study on Sunday. <laughs> um, just so you know, on Sunday evenings at 7 o'clock, we have what we're calling the Foundations of Faith it's sort of a new believers Bible study, but I didn't want people to feel like it was just for new believers. So if you, you might have been uh, in church for many, many years, and you just want to make sure you've got the foundation solid, uh, come out on Sunday night and join us. It's, it's been great. We look forward to having any of you. We've been going for a few weeks now, but you can jump in at any time. And this is a class that we'll, we'll redo periodically, you know, maybe twice a year or something like that. So Keep it in the, in the back of your mind if, if Sunday evenings doesn't work for you. Uh, be sure to uh, make a request. Let me know what, what times do work if it's something you'd like to do because we will be flexible with the, with the next class or whatever. So that's the foundations of faith. Today we're in Genesis 2 still, and uh, you might feel that we've been lingering here for a while, um, and it's kind of like, why wouldn't we? It's the garden. Let's spend as much time here as we can because we know what's coming. But we want, I wanted to take the opportunity to kind of review and, and, and have a little exhortation and some application of what we've already learned about the nature of our God and ourselves as God originally intended, it, intended us to be before we move ahead into the, the dark day that, that's coming, although I will shed some do some foreshadowing in that area. It was only two weeks ago that, that Kyle last preached, and uh, he made some very interesting uh, observations, or, or couched some of the things about God in an interesting way when he said that God forms and he fills. And that's what we see in Genesis 1, which is poetry. Genesis 1 is, is poetry, Genesis 2 is history. And so we see that emphasis on how God forms things and then fills them with life. He formed the sky and filled it with birds and 
the firmament, which is kind of hard to understand, but it's a big space between things. And he filled it with the lights, the stars, the sun, and the moon. He formed the seas and filled them with living creatures. He formed the dry ground and filled it with vegetation and the livestock and the wild animals and all the creepy crawly things. He formed a garden and he put man in it. Then he formed man and filled him with the breath of life. A kind of famous quote, which is often misquoted, um, by Blaise Pascal, way, way back, some number of years, where he said, within man there is an infinite abyss that can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object. In other words, by God himself. He's formed us to be filled by his own presence and spirit. All of chapter 1 and a good part of chapter 2, and in fact, in many ways, the whole Bible addresses the problem that's implied in Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void. The earth was not a place, and it was empty. But our God is a God who makes things. He makes living, dynamic, complex things which attest to his glory. He does not create, like man does, static, that means unchanging, you know, masterpieces of art. Man creates that kind of thing. Dead things, even though they might be very clever, machines, beautiful works of art, statues, buildings, and it's the closest that we can get to filling this creative nature that is part of the, the image in which God created us. Michelangelo is one of the most creative people you'll ever read about. These are some shots of his statue of David. It's incredible. Uh, one of Michelangelo's contemporaries named Giorgio Vasari said, certainly a miracle has occurred by Michelangelo to restore to life one who was dead. The statue was so lifelike. He said it's like being David being restored to life. Then he listed all the large and most grand of ancient statues and said that Michelangelo's work had surpassed all ancient and modern statues, whether Greek or Latin, that have ever existed. And yet it's a piece of stone. But it's got an attitude, doesn't he? He's, he's, he's looking back over his shoulders, though he's contemplating Goliath. You know, and the detail in his hand is just amazing. It only took uh, Michelangelo two years to carve the statue, which is a, a miracle in my mind. Two years. If I had two years to work on David's nose, it would still look like a potato. Another example from Michelangelo is, is his paeta. Uh, the paeta is a, a theme, a common theme of, of statues and uh, and it means the, the, the virgin with the, the body of Christ after the crucifixion. But his is very different from many, besides just being beautiful. Um, 
he kind of downplayed a lot of the scars and the blood and the, and the wounds. And even Mary doesn't have this expression of grief. He's trying to portray a, a, a sense of, of calm confidence in God's plan. And it's a beautiful work of art, but it's sat just like that for hundreds of years. It hasn't moved. It's not alive. It's made of stone. Our God creates life. And living things are dynamic. They grow, they change, they produce fruit, offspring, noise, smells, and dare I say, waste. If you have children, or a pet, a couple chickens, or even a single house plant, you know that living things require attention. Those of you with new babies, you know that those babies require a lot of attention. Is that baby beautiful? Absolutely. Is it perfect? Yes. Is it carefree and easy lifestyle to take care of that baby? No, it's a lot of work. But maybe you'd like to have a, an exact replica in Carrera marble that you could sit on the mantle and enjoy the beauty and, and per, an exquisite detail of that baby, right? Don't answer. But the first point I want to make sure we get is that God creates living things, and living things require maintenance. Mark Rodericks, who has a new, well, not so new, but a young child of his own at home, ruined my plans for a leisurely existence in heaven last week when he reminded us or pointed out to us through the scriptures that um, work did not come as a result of the fall. Darn. It is not a consequence of sin. And how do we know this? Because as we just read, um, God himself took Adam and placed him in the garden and gave him some work to do. Adam was told, and in other translations, it doesn't come out quite as clearly in, in the, the translation we read, he was told to tend and to keep the garden. The garden was beautiful. It, it says it had all, every kind of plant and every kind of plant that produced food that was good to eat, and it was alive. But it needed regular attention, and that's why Adam was placed there. But it also says that he was placed there to enjoy, enjoy it and to enjoy his relationship with God, which kind of makes me wonder, are we somehow supposed to enjoy our jobs? Mind blown. Um, he had a job to do and a responsibility to fulfill. Let me tell you a little bit about what the work that Adam might have had to do in the garden. There are a lot of important things that have to be done in a garden. In, um, in Adam's time, some of those would have been handled by God. The rest were his responsibility. Number one, you have to ensure adequate water supply. We'll put that one on God's list. Number two, you have to ensure adequate drainage. I think that goes on Adam's list. 
You have to ensure adequate light. That's for God. Ensure adequate airflow. Well, God's responsible for the air, but there might be some work that Adam has to do, thinning and cutting, overgrowth, and getting the large debris out of the way, clearing matter. So he's got some work to do in ensuring good airflow. You have to provide nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium, primarily through the soil and the processes that occur in the soil. We'll give that one to God and the bugs because they make sure all that stuff happens. But there's an aspect of that which could also fall to Adam because crop rotation is very important for maintaining, um, for, for not over-exhausting uh, any one uh, of the chemicals or the nutrients that are in, in some kind of area uh, of the garden. You have to ensure that things have adequate space to grow. So Adam had to plan and maybe plant and rearrange and move some things around, thin seedlings and all that work. He had to weed. Now, I'm not sure. There might have been less weeds because after the fall, it says that the thistles sprang up out of the ground, which would have made the job worse. But there are always plants that compete with one another. So I think Adam would have had some work to do to make sure that the weaker plants had a chance. There might be mulching to do. God provides the material. Adam has to pile it up and spread it around. Augmenting the soil with compost or maybe different kinds of sand or material to help drainage is something you normally have to do. You have to monitor for pests. You have to present, prevent disease by removing things that are sick or that have died, plants that didn't make it. You got to keep that stuff out of there. You have to encourage the right kind of birds to come or discourage the wrong kind of birds with scarecrows or, or, or something. Oh no. And you want to encourage the right kind of insects to be there, like ladybugs and praying mantises and butterflies and bees. There's a lot to do. There's a lot of work in keeping that garden. And that job did not disappear when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. It got harder. It got maybe a little bit less rewarding, maybe more frustrating. But they still had a job to do. We still have a job to do. We have to tend and keep the garden that we've been placed in. Tending implies, this is a little bit of a definition, applying yourself to ensure that the place you have been placed in is in order and has what it needs to thrive and grow and be fruitful. To keep implies protecting that place, protecting it from accident, from natural decline, from violence or abuse that could occur from outside. And some of the tasks involved with that, with, with keeping or protecting a place like the garden, we're going to give all of these to Adam, is maybe create some paths, plan some traffic flow so that the weaker plants don't get trampled. Maybe install some fencing to keep out the critters that like to eat some of the plants or the critters that like to eat one another. I don't know. Keep out the skunks and the raccoons and the deer. You might have to protect some of the fruit by, again, a scarecrow or netting over the berries. There's, there's work to do there. Create fences and signage to discourage the two-legged kind of vermin. Um, you know, Eve was kind of unpredictable. You don't know where she was going to go. Um, and again... You've got to cut back 
dead and diseased limbs, things that could fall and cause damage and, 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 and injure other, other plants. There's a lot of work to do in that as well. But this is the place that God placed Adam. He did it intentionally, and he gave Adam a job to do there, in addition to naming all the animals, which we, we, we read in the scripture today. God gives us all a place and a purpose. There's a very interesting um, story in the history of Israel, which is recorded in the book of Jeremiah. The Babylonians were on Jerusalem's doorstep. The northern kingdom, which the capital was Samaria, you know how they hated the Samaritans, that had long ago been conquered by Assyria. The Babylonians had now taken many of the cities in the southern kingdom, and they're on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And the remaining population, the remnant, comes to Jeremiah, the prophet of Yahweh, and asks him to pray. And this is from Jeremiah 42, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then all the army officers, including Johanan, son of Kareah, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest, approached Jeremiah the prophet and said to him, Please hear our petition. And pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Where should we go and what should we do? Isn't that the question that we all ask? almost daily, especially in times of trouble or, or difficulty as, as the Jews were in here. We want to know, where can I run to? Where is there safety and security? Where can I find ease and satisfaction? Where can I go to avoid the things that I'm afraid are going to happen? And there's the corollary to those questions are, what will I do there? Are there jobs there? Will I be able to rest and enjoy my life, have some me time? Can I survive there on my savings? What's the cost of living like there? Will the people there accept me? And do they have stuffed quahogs? critical questions of life. In a minute, I'll get back to Jeremiah 42, because I'm sure you're all anxious to hear how God answers that prayer. But a couple of observations. First, is that God, getting back to Adam, God took Adam and placed him in the garden. Did you ever realize? I, I always pictured when I read Genesis, the beautiful garden and when it says that God formed man out of the dust of the earth, he's in the mud of the garden. But it apparently wasn't, because God took Adam from somewhere else and placed him in the garden. You wonder how that worked. Did they walk there, hand in hand? Did they take a long hike? I picture hiking through the mountains and coming over a rise and seeing 
Adam for the first time seeing the beautiful garden in the valley? Or did God just levitate Adam's unconscious body through the firmament until it came to rest in the garden? We don't know. We don't know how that happened. There's a period of time there that we can't account for, and you won't know until you have a chance to ask Adam or God or someone else who was there observing, like the angels. But I was wondering as I thought about that, what if Adam objected? What if he got distracted? What if he lost his way? And then I realized eventually that is what happened. He was in the garden, but the same thing happened. He got distracted. And he eventually came to say, I have a better idea than, than God. I have a plan that I think is better than yours. And Adam followed his own way. Yes, Adam had a tempter, an enemy. And you can want to blame the devil for Adam's choice. But um, temptation is not a sin. Being tempted is not a sin. Giving in to temptation is a sin. And Adam and Eve together gave in to that temptation. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 explains how that happens in each one of our lives. It says that each person is tempted. Note that word is. It is going to happen. It has happened. It will continue to happen in your life. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This verse explains that desire is the opportunity for temptation. And it is desire that conceives and begets or brings to life sin. There had to have been desire in Adam and Eve for the devil's temptation to have any effect. Isn't that interesting? It didn't all start with an evil devil. It started with desire in the heart of Adam and Eve. I don't know what it was. We can anticipate, we can guess a little bit from Scripture. It might have been a desire for tasty food. Or it might have been a, des a desire for beautiful things. Although, th why would you pick it and then eat it? More than likely, it was a desire to know what God knows. All of which are a form, a manifestation of pride. Because they're the same as saying, I deserve more than I have. Which is Satan's sin. The sin of pride. I I'm going to be lifted up to the highest place. Adam said, I think it would be good to know about good and evil. I think I can handle that. I don't believe I'll receive the consequence that God said. I think I have a plan that's better than his. And so he acted on it. We're going to hear a lot more about Adam's sin and the fall of man in the future. I don't want to get too much into it. But it's interesting to note that even though Adam had a place to be and a job to do, he wasn't satisfied. 
He wanted something more. It's interesting, we have a saying that you'll recognize. It's a little out of date, but still in use a little bit. If you meet someone whose acts kind of proud and arrogant or disrespectful, you might say he doesn't know his place. Adam forgot his place. He pictured himself someplace else. And we all have places that God has placed us into. And we have to remember them. We have to consider them and recognize that God is sovereign in the way he has placed each of us in life. There are those obvious geographic places. You have a house or an apartment, and that's in a neighborhood, which is in a town, which is in a state, which is in a country. There are sort of these vocational places or situational places. You have a job, or if not a job, you have a role in a family or an organization. And these are the unique combinations of location and relationships that put you in contact with certain people on a regular basis with some structure and a specific purpose. This is your sphere of influence, if you will. And you've been placed there by God. These are lives and relationships that you've been placed into, which can grow and mature or wither and die. And a lot of it depends on how much we invest in tending and keeping those relationships and those places. There is a church, the universal church, the body of Christ, but also a local body. You are here today, presumably, because you feel placed by God in this local church. It's a place in which you are to exercise God-given gifts for the strengthening of the whole church. We no longer, or we never did, exist in a formless void. God took care of that. He made a place, and he gave us a job, and he put us there to do it. He carved a hole out of our world and in our society and fitted us perfectly into it for his purposes. And he's given us all something to do. You've been placed where you are to tend and to keep it. Your home, your family, your job, your neighborhood, your church are full of life and can get messy. And it requires attention. The question is, how will you apply yourself to each one of these situations? Start within your own family. How will you apply yourself so that your children have what they need to grow and thrive and bear fruit. That's your first responsibility. But then it goes further. How will you apply yourself to ensure excuse me, that your spouse has what he or she needs to grow and thrive and bear fruit? Likewise, with your neighborhood, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, you have a role to play in the growth and fruitfulness of everyone around you. It's the job you've been given. How will you protect 
and keep each one of those situations? That's a tough question. If you just start thinking about it, you can drive yourself crazy because I have to make sure I have insurance for my family. I have to make sure I have locks on the doors. I have to make sure that we throw away spoiled food. I have to make sure there's a lot to do. But it's our job. It's our responsibility. It's what God has given us to do, to look after and protect our family, our neighbors, our church. It's the nature of man. It's the way God has created us. Some of these things that we have to do are global. They're very obvious, easy to know, particularly as a Christian, you read through the Bible. We are not to neglect gathering together, right? We are to pray at all times and pray without ceasing. We are to do the work of an evangelist. We're to ease the suffering of the poor. We're to defend the fatherless and take up the cause of the widow and the orphan. We're to cling to our spouse and to remain faithful and to respect and love each other even as Christ loved. We're not to provoke our children. As children, we're to obey and honor our parents. And we're not supposed to break the law. That's what it means when it says, do not suffer as an evildoer. And finally, we are to pray for our leaders. And yes, pay your taxes. Those are kind of global statements made in Scripture that we as believers ought to be doing. But there's another whole category of actions or decisions which are personal and individual and very hard to know objectively whether you're right or wrong. Where do I live? Where should I work? What ministry should I support? There's hundreds of them out there. There's no right or wrong. I mean, there's important decisions you ought to consider, and you ought to evaluate carefully what you do. But ultimately, the decision is yours. Should I speak up about this situation, or should I butt out? How much should I spend on this thing versus that thing? These are questions that don't have clear right versus wrong answers. Is it wrong to live in Florida? Yes, if God is calling you to North Dakota. But that's an individual call. Is it wrong to be an environmental engineer? No, unless God is calling you to be an eye surgeon. The only advice that I can give, as I, as I read about this, I was astounded to find um, that a, it's hugely helpful to read Hebrews 11 and to meditate on it. Hebrews 11 has been called the Hall of Fame of Faith. It's a great list of people throughout the the history of the Bible, who pleased God by their faith. And if you read it carefully, you'll see that all of the things that they are commended for doing can't obviously or clearly be called right or wrong. They were just life decisions. It says, it begins by saying that we, by faith, understand that God created the universe. That's an interesting statement. It's not right or wrong to understand but by faith, you can understand, you can believe Genesis 1. By faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. They both offered sacrifices. Why was Abel's better? I don't know. It was something in, 
in his attitude. By faith, Noah constructed an ark. There is no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt build an ark. That was an individual instruction to Noah. And he had to face a lot of hard decisions in, in obeying that. He faced, he faced ridicule and rejection, and, 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 and it took a long time. But he did it. By faith, Abraham went to a foreign land. Where should I go and what should I do? He answered that one in faith. Here's a really remarkable one. By faith, Joseph gave directions to his sons concerning where to bury his bones. Now, there's a life-altering decision, if ever. Why is that important? As you think about it, because Joseph pictured his offspring returning to the promised land and in faith said, I want my bones buried there. By faith, the people, the Jews, crossed the Red Sea. And the author of Hebrews goes on to say that there are many more who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong in weakness, became mighty, and several others. And I hope it's clear to you, and, and I encourage you to read through Hebrews 11 sometime and see that all of these individual, personal applications of faith occurred within the lives of, of these great men and some women. They weren't commended because they obeyed the Ten Commandments. They were commended for facing life's challenges with faith. The only thing that matters in these life decisions is, are you acting in fear or in faith? Returning to our story from Jeremiah. Ten days after they asked Jeremiah to pray for them, he returned with an answer from the Lord. Jeremiah came back and says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, If you will remain in this land... That's his answer. That's the answer of where do we go. He says, remain in this land. And if you do, I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. But there's also consequences. He says, but if you say we will not remain in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord our God, and say, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread, and we will dwell there. Sounds like a good decision. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear will overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you are afraid 
shall follow close after you to Egypt, and there you shall die. So, given that choice, what would you do? Raise your hand if you'd stay in Jerusalem with the king of Babylon right on the doorsteps, threatening to encircle the city and lay siege to it, where traditionally you then starve to death until you're eating feces and the children who have died. That's the typical way sieges work out. Something very much to be afraid of. But God said, if you stay in this land, I will not pluck you up. Or go to Egypt. No war, no famine. Everything's nice. I can eat leeks. Guess what the Jews did? They went to Egypt. And the only ones to return from there was Jeremiah and his servants. There's a very important biblical principle here. And it is that if you trust in men and you trust in your own wisdom, safety is an illusion. Try to remember that because I've seen it come true so many times. The thing you think you're doing to play it safe is not safe. The place you think you're going to stay in because it's secure is not secure. Not if it's not in God's will. And the thing that frightens you most about obeying God will instead become the source of the greatest joy as you obediently follow his call in your life. We saw that Adam gave opportunity to temptation because of desire. Israel gave opportunity to temptation through fear. And those two are two sides of the same coin. Desire is simply, in today's vernacular, fear of missing out. You want to have something because you're afraid of not having it, because everyone else has it, and I'll be happy if I have it. And fear is simply the desire to keep what you have or to avoid pain and loss. They're, they're both the same emotion, just one in a positive term and one in a negative sense. But faith is action based on confidence in God's promises and God's character. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. As you read the Gospels, it's, it's amazing how in his three years of public ministry, the things that Jesus said beautifully encapsulate huge Old Testament themes and, and stories. And this thing that we saw demonstrated in the life and the history of Israel, Jesus Christ summarizes in Matthew 16, 25, when he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Skip four and five. They're in there somewhere, but there's Matthew. <laughs> That's the summary of this whole thing. It's the summary of the mistake that Adam made, the sin of Adam, the summary of the life of Israel. Whoever would save his own life will lose it, 
And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So somehow, <laughs> a look into Adam's life in Eden, in Eden before the fall has become a message about faith. I don't know why that happens. Maybe it's because I needed to hear that. Maybe it's because someone here needed to hear that. Or as a church, we need to be focused on God's faithfulness. We have to be reminded that He is utterly trustworthy and faithful. And we can have confidence in Him. His nature is to create opportunity and to place the person of His choosing in the midst of it to help things to grow and thrive and bear fruit that brings glory to Him and to His Son, Jesus Christ. And I believe that's it. Could you bow your heads and pray with me? Almighty God, if we look around us, how can we deny that you make a place, you fill it for your purposes, and you give us jobs to do, assignments, responsibilities, and that those should be a source of joy as we apply ourselves in the way that you intended for all of mankind and for each of us individually in our life situations. God, we know that we are in a fallen world. We know that it's, it's tough. We know that there are thistles that crop up in everything we do, but we know that you will make it all right one day. And that is the hope. That is the confidence we have that causes us to faithfully do things your way to go where you want us to go, to do what you want us to do. We pray that your word would continue to come alive in our hearts as we read it and apply it and, and seek to glorify you. Thank you for this time, God. Speak to us and prepare our hearts now for our communion. In Jesus' name, amen.